Wish you weren't hearing an ad? Want to get the next episode even sooner? After the show, head to watchnebula.com slash modulus. You'll get access to our original podcasts ad-free and sooner than everyone else, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational content creators. Best of all, you're helping support us to make even more amazing content. Check out watchnebula.com slash modulus. This is Modulus, the podcast hosted by me, Brian McManus. And me, Stephanie Salmon. In each episode, we take turns sharing the stories of the people behind extraordinary science, engineering, and technological advancement. To inspire not only ourselves, but generations of inventors and history makers. Today, we're talking to two experts who are working to fundamentally alter our approach to one of the most life-changing technologies we have, batteries. Because even though batteries dictate our technological advancements, the energy we use, and life as we know it, their production also limits us. Today's guests are doing something about it. Can you point to me all of the battery chemistries that have come into the marketplace? Zero. If the growth is anything like has been forecast, the supply chain is going to need to really expand to be able to deal with the demand. But I say, abandon the golden rule for the platinum rule. A few decades down the line, there may be a generation that does not recognize the hum of an exhaust pipe. Think of it like the distinctive but now obsolete sounds of dial-up internet. If our vision of a zero emissions future is realized, the gas-powered car would go the way of broadband internet's sluggish predecessor. But unlike dial-up, the end of a reliance on fossil fuels is not just a matter of better technology, it's a matter of energy storage. And that's where the supply chain and today's guests come in. The lithium-ion battery did not come from the battery industry. You are now listening to Donald Sadaway. Sony wanted a better battery to power their handheld device. Renowned professor of materials chemistry at MIT, inventor of molten oxide electrolysis, one of Time magazine's 100 most influential people in the world in 2012 founder of liquid metal battery company, Ambry, and one of my personal academic heroes. The battery industry refused to even manufacture the lithium-ion battery. Lithium-ion, the ubiquitous rechargeable battery that enables our smartphones, portable electronics, power tools, electric vehicles, the Mars Curiosity rover, and many more things. It wasn't a product of battery producers, it was a consequence of one company's attempt to build a more portable handheld video camera. And Sony goes to all of the big battery producers in Japan. China was still an isolated communist country. And they go and they say, here's the formulation, build it. And each and every Japanese battery manufacturer said, no, I'm not building it. We have all of this capital investment in the manufacture of nickel metal hydride batteries. We can't build this battery in that plant. Keep in mind, this is being said to a struggling emergent electronics manufacturer. Sony wasn't in the business of batteries, and it's not like there was a handbook for building a lithium ion battery manufacturing facility. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at the board meeting 
where somebody in a Japanese board meeting, everybody's just looking at each other, trying to guess what the oldest man in the room is going to say. But somebody at some point said, you know, if we want to have lithium-ion batteries for our appliances, there's only one way we're going to have them. We're going to build them ourselves. So Sony figured it out and built the first of its kind lithium-ion battery manufacturing facility. And very soon thereafter, they were getting inquiries from people who were building mobile phones, saying, can we have those? And then people who were building uh, mobile computers, laptop computers, can we have those? And by 1995, nickel metal hybrid was pretty much displaced. You know, I knew that story. So when I started working on a liquid metal battery, I didn't go out and, you know, I didn't talk to battery manufacturers. Everybody would have said, you're crazy. It's all liquid. It's operating at 500 degrees Celsius. That's going to be dangerous, right? With Sony's approach in mind, Donald is trying to usher in a new battery technology of his own. Donald's liquid metal battery is made with low-cost, earth-abundant materials. Slice open one of his batteries and you'll see three layers. On top is a molten metal, in the middle is a molten salt and the bottom is a heavier molten metal. These layers are naturally stratified by density and with the help of the molten salt in the middle, ions move through the molten salt layer, which is what allows for the charging and discharging of the battery. Donald's potentially revolutionizing idea is grounded in what he calls science in the service of society. It's a worldview he inherited from his socially conscious upbringing. It's just in, in my nature. And in being the first in his family to go to college. I, I always felt this pull to try to make things better. I coined the phrase that we abandon the golden rule. I said, the golden rule, it's, it's good. I mean, I should treat you the way I expect you to treat me. That's good. It's better than I exploit you. But at some level, it's, it's kind of a rooted in reciprocity. If I treat you well, then maybe you'll treat me well. But I say, abandon the golden rule for the platinum rule. The platinum rule is I treat you better than I expect to be treated. That means I, I leave the place better than the way I found it. So then I, when I take that into the scientific world, I invent a car that doesn't just not pollute the atmosphere. The car goes down the road and the air is becoming cleaner as the car goes down the road. Why are we thinking like that? So I invented the molten oxide electrolysis. So we want a, a smelter such that the water is purer downstream from the smelter. The air is cleaner in the vicinity of the smelter. People fight to have the smelter sited in their neighborhoods because it, everything is better. So just start thinking that way and pretty soon it, it becomes infectious and you can't help yourself. While lithium ion batteries degrade over time, Donald's batteries are self-healing. With the liquid metal battery, after it's been charged, you've purified the battery back to its pristine initial condition. This means it won't degrade as fast as lithium ion batteries. In fact, Donald put it to the test. After 5,000 cycles of discharging and recharging, the liquid metal batteries retain 99% of the nameplate capacity. This thing is fade resistant. If you took a lithium ion battery, and deep discharged it once a day, every day for four years, the 
capacity fade would be unacceptable. That makes the liquid metal battery a superior battery for Donald's intended application, grid-level energy storage. The grid is the world's largest supply chain with zero inventory. Donald's proposed battery can be scaled up to store large amounts of electricity, critical to a future powered by renewable energy. Even if countries suddenly pivoted to renewable energy sources like solar and wind, the problem becomes storing the energy for when it's actually needed. People will still need electricity on days the sun isn't shining and there's no wind. The only reason that we can get away with intermittent renewables without adequate storage is that they represent such a small fraction of total grid power. The grid can tolerate a little bit of imbalance. Once you get up to, pick a number, 15%, if 15% of our electricity is coming from intermittent renewables, if you don't have adequate storage for 15%, you're going to have to have some curtailment. People don't understand. They think it's like um, water. You know, if it rains, that's a bonus. You've got extra water. But for the grid, no. For the grid, the grid must operate such that supply is in perfect balance with demand everywhere at all times. Even though what Donald is working on could be a relatively cheap and absolutely necessary storage solution, it's not a quick process from the university lab to the real world. So I had a concept. We reduced it to practice and then got it to the point where we said it's time to start a company. And what was the mission of the company? Not to do research. The research was done at MIT. We had the idea. We reduced it to practice at the lab bench in an idealized situation. Now, how do you take that and turn it into a marketable product that is able to be manufactured and to be manufactured with high reliability, you know, Six Sigma. You know, at the university, you know, you, you make five cells and one of them works and, and you get a publication out of it and everybody's high-fiving and so on. But, but in manufacturing, everything has to work. So we had to design the manufacturing process and there's nobody to turn to, there's no model. I can take the most brilliant, the most competent, people in the lithium-ion battery sector and almost everything that they know is inapplicable because the lithium-ion chemistry is different, which means that the format of the battery is different. Their needs are different. They have to guard against thermal rise. We have to guard against thermal fall. We want to keep our batteries hot. They're trying to prevent their batteries from getting hot. So, you know, for us, we're answering different questions. But in talking with Donald, I found that there are also some questions they're not trying to answer, particularly in the realms of metrics. What is the round-trip efficiency of the liquid metal battery compared to, say, lithium-ion? With lithium-ion, it's, it's pretty high. It's, it's over 90%, depending on what your current rate is. If, if you do gentle charging the way we do our phones, give them multiple hours and so on, round-trip efficiency is over 95%. With liquid metal battery, it's about 80%, because the difference, the 20%, is the energy loss desirably to heat the battery to keep it at temperature. So you say, wow, 80%, that's 20% loss. What's up with that? This is a case of don't answer irrelevant questions, because 
The, the key question is, what is the cost of electricity? Think about it like this. On the one hand, you could have a battery that has 80% round-trip efficiency, but the upfront capital cost is expensive. And on the other, you could have a battery that is cheap, but only operates at 50% round-trip efficiency. If, at the end of the day, the more efficient battery still costs more cents per kilowatt hour, you'd opt for the less efficient battery. I'm not going to make a sloppy liquid metal battery that is needlessly wasting energy. But I'm not going to fret over the fact that lithium ion is at 95 and I'm only at 80. There are all these metrics out there and, and we're all competing because we want to be number one in all of these metrics. But I was at, uh, it, was a, it was a government, it was probably DOE meeting. And there were some people from an aluminum producer and they were very proud because they had developed this alloy and it allowed them to make the structure for a bridge. It was an aluminum bridge. And, you know, everybody was, wow, that's great. And I said, oh, what's the attribute of an aluminum bridge? And they said, it weighs a lot less than steel. And I said, are you intending on moving this? It weighs a lot less than steel. It costs a lot more than steel. And it's movable. And I thought, don't pay for attributes you don't need. By all means, make it as efficient as possible. But... That's not the metric by which you should decide whether to continue to work on that. Because if early in, in the journey, somebody who is judging whether we should be allowed to continue, if they had been using the round-trip efficiency as the key criterion, we would have been shut down. And it's not like the odds aren't against them in trying to debut a new battery. Can you point to me all of the battery chemistries that have come into the marketplace? Zero. It's a treacherous road to market for a new battery, despite how many are in the arena trying to make it happen. But as Sony has proven, and Donald is proving, it's worth the hurdles. The average time it takes for a new material that's conceived to go from lab bench to market is 18 years. And I'm, I'm 10 years down this road. We're still in business and we're, we're, we're hoping to be able to release the first product in customer hands by 2022. For now, we continue to make do with the technology we have. One area where that's especially critical is in electric vehicles, given their growing market share as consumers increasingly opt for greener vehicles. EVs currently use lithium ion batteries in a supply chain entirely dependent on mining. But there might be a more sustainable way, and now is the time to figure it out. So the question is, what can you do with what you actually are getting now? Linda Gaines is a transportation systems analyst at Argonne National Laboratory. Over the course of her nearly 45-year career at Argonne, she's written the handbooks researchers have used to aid studies on issues involved in recycling energy-intensive materials. Linda looks at these issues with the more expansive, full systems point of view. Hence the title, Transportation Systems Analyst. Yeah, I made that title up. Still, it's hard to think of a better way to describe her approach in figuring out how to recycle lithium-ion batteries from EVs. There's a pyrometallurgical process, a smelting process, that's commercial in Belgium, and also you can just throw all lithium-ion batteries into a nickel smelter 
Linda gets granular as she considers the outputs of any given recycling process. We're taking small pieces of metal like cobalt, nickel, manganese, aluminium, lithium, copper and graphite. But the problem with that is as lithium ion battery chemistry changes, the amount of cobalt in the batteries, at least for electric vehicles, is being decreased. But she has to then consider the value of these outputs, because at the end of the day, recycling won't work if no one wants to buy what's being recycled. And so the value of the cobalt product that you get out of that recycling process is going to be going down and down and down. In addition, smelting does not recover the lithium generally, although you, you can leach it back out of the slag, but it's, that's not usually economical. And the nickel just isn't as valuable as, as the cobalt. Linda says the aforementioned pyrometallurgical and the acid-based hydrometallurgy processes are common globally. But at Ergon, Linda is exploring how to recover the full battery including the cathode structure. This third process, wherein almost all of the battery materials can be recovered, is known as direct recycling. The cathode structure is a valuable product regardless of what chemical elements are in it. So even something like lithium ion phosphate, which does not contain really any valuable elements, is likely to give you a cathode product out of the recycling process that is in fact valuable and can make the the process profitable. This in turn makes recycling more attractive and feasible relative to mining the materials in the first place. For now, mining remains cheaper, but is rife with political, economical and environmental challenges that could limit supply or impact prices in the future. Simply put, it's not wise to be entirely reliant on supply from mining. So far, there's not a real bottleneck But if the growth is anything like has been forecast, the supply chain is going to need to really uh, expand to be able to deal with the demand. There's just lots and lots of material that's going to be needed. Now, the question that presumably you want to really answer also is how much can recycling help with that? And my point of view on that is because the growth is so rapid, And because also these are products that are going to have a rather long lifetime, it's actually going to be quite a while before recycling supplies a significant fraction of the demand. That wouldn't happen really until demand actually turns over, starts to flatten. But as long as growth is really rapid, it's going to be a while before recycling can supply a significant fraction of the demand. On the other hand, Having a domestic supply for the U.S., let's say, could do a lot to stabilizing the price of some of these materials. And it does provide a buffer against high-priced imports. And the other thing of that is also we're hoping that we can actually develop an economical process. So not only do you have the, the possibility of buffering the price, but you have the possibility of having a much cheaper product coming out that we hope is going to be just as good. This is not a simple feat. There is so many layers to the battery recycling process. Before it can even begin, the logistics of collecting the batteries for recycling factors into the cost. Then they're selecting the actual dissecting process. How do you take this apart, mechanically and or chemically? 
and in that process, which processes happen in which order. On top of all this, the thing to remember is that the batteries coming in for recycling are not necessarily going to be the same. Different care companies use different formulations for their batteries, so the recycling process has to be flexible enough to accommodate a variety of battery chemistries while still resulting in valuable products. What comes out is going to depend on what comes in. So that's why if we really don't know quite what's going to be coming in, because it could be from different manufacturers, it could be from different models in the same manufacturer and still be some mixture of chemicals, you know, different cathode mixtures. And so what we hope to be able to do is separate them all from each other so that this process, depending on what it went in, would have separate streams coming out for each different chemistry. Parts of the direct recycling process for lithium-ion batteries are being demonstrated at BenchScale at Argonne and its university and lab partners. Next, Linda hopes to scale up the most promising processes to demonstrate viability and enable industrial adoption. At that point, we're hoping to be able to have a chain of processes at the end of our third year, which will be next year, to actually start with a cell, go through a chain of processes with the material, and be able to make a new cell at the end of the process. At that point, we will be looking for industry partners and hoping to get some uh, more support from industry to actually get commercial plants going. This recycling method is in its beginning stages, which is fine since we're not yet at a fever pitch for lithium-ion battery waste. But as we watch sales of electric vehicles rise, and we consider that lithium-ion batteries are anticipated to last between 15 to 20 years, this recycling process could come to fruition just in time to ease the waste management problem we're facing with lithium-ion batteries. With such a complex problem on the horizon, it's clear that this type of research requires a systems-wide approach. Look at the whole picture, because if you get too stuck on one little piece of it, you're likely to miss the ramifications of it. I'm thinking of some, some regulations that the EPA put out years and years ago, looking at scrubbers for coal-fired power plants. They were simply looking at what you can do with what's coming out of the stack. And the answer was, oh, you put in a scrubber and that got the air clean. But what it made was this toothpaste sludge that you then had as a solid waste or semi-solid waste. And somebody else worried about that. So you really need to look at the whole picture. And that, that's sort of one of the main types of work that we've been doing in our group and it's life cycle analysis, where you look at where, what raw materials go into making something, what all of the inputs and outputs are along the whole product's whole life cycle to make sure that you aren't making a problem somewhere else. The road to innovation is not linear. It certainly wasn't for the lithium ion battery, but the technology changed everything about modern lives. While we don't know what the next life-altering technology will be, we do know there are scientists, engineers, researchers, people like Donald and Linda, currently in the middle of bringing those technologies to life and pushing the boundaries of our current limitations in the process. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Modulus. Let us know what you think of this podcast by tweeting at us at Modulus Mag, or if you're feeling generous, give us a rate and a review. This podcast was brought to you by the minds and team behind YouTube's Real Engineering and Real Science. This episode was hosted, produced, and written by yours truly, Brian McManus, edited by Graham Harther, and produced and written by Erica Corder. Our music composer is Lee Rosevere. Thank you to our guests, Donald Sadaway and Linda Gaines, for sharing their stories with us and our listeners. If you'd like to listen to more of this podcast or others like it, go to watchnebula.com and be sure to subscribe. Until next time, thanks for listening.